A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. New coach Stan Albach, who bared a close resemblance to a cruise ship captain with those shiny buttons <laughs> on his jacket as he stood on the sidelines. The love boat. <laughs> it's all love boat. I always like to say that Michael got to play with me for a year at North Carolina. <laughs> I think it really helped him. Spectacular player from the beginning. You can see right away Jordan was going to be a big-time scorer. And showed what an impact he was going to have on the league. This is NB86, celebrating the 30-year anniversary of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls' 1986 NBA season. And now your hosts, Adam Ryan and Aaron Steen. Welcome to episode two of NB86. How are you today, Aaron? Thanks again for being part of the show, mate. Just broken down our first two games of the 85-86 Chicago Bulls season. Looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, it's going to be good, mate. If you're a regular listener, welcome back to the show. If you're joining us for the first time, then welcome. The first game up for discussion today, mate. Let's welcome back Robo. I did appear in episode one of this series. Obviously made a big impact. Cleveland versus Chicago. October 25th, 1985. Game was played at Chicago Stadium in Chicago, Illinois, in front of 11,124 people. It was the Cavaliers TV network. Commentators were Jim Brinson, a name from NB85, I'm sure you'll remember. He broadcast Jordan's first regular season game as a member of the Bullets commentary crew, and he was joined by Jack Corrigan. George Carl was coach of the Cavs, and Stan Albeck was coach of the Bulls. Good to see that after an electrifying 84-85 rookie season that the Chicago fans had embraced the Bulls with a not even close to capacity crowd for the first game of the 86 season. Yeah, a good six or 7,000 less, so not great signs. And the season would only go from bad to worse in terms of attendance, and we'll get to that in the not-too-distant future. This was the season opener for both teams. Chicago's roster was dramatically different to the previous season. Gone were David Greenwood, Steve Johnson, Wes Matthews, the brothers Caldwell and Charles Jones, Ennis Watley, Rod Higgins, and Chris Engler from the 84-85 roster, and they were replaced by Kyle Macy, George the Iceman Gervin, Gene Banks, John Paxson, Billy McKinney, Mike Schmreck, Mike Holton, Tony Brown, and Ron Brewer. And we should add as well, mate, Rod Higgins would return to play with the Bulls for five games later in the 1986 season after he had brief stints with... Seattle, San Antonio, and New Jersey, all in the one year. Now, Dave Corzine, Quentin Daly, Sidney Green, Michael Jordan, not surprisingly, Juwan Oldham and Orlando Woolridge were part of last year's team. And of course, let's not forget, newly acquired rookie through the 85 draft, Charles Oakley was also now a member of the Bulls. Chicago starters for this game were Kyle Macy, Michael Jordan, Orlando Woolridge, Sidney Green, and Jawan Oldham. Straight into the first quarter play. Orlando got the scoring underway for the Chicago Bulls 85-86 season at the free throw line off an offensive board from a Michael Jordan miss. The commentators timed a comment about Kyle Macy's great defensive abilities perfectly as he deflected a Cavs pass. 
which led to Jordan's first score of the game, a difficult double-clutch 14-footer on the baseline. He just had an incredible knack for just doing the hanging double pump and off-balance sort of shots better sometimes than an open jumper. Especially these first two games that we've seen, he loved that double clutch. He did. Jordan was active early with some nice defensive plays. He deflected a pass and then played at the passing lane with a steal off a lazy Mark West pass. Himself and Orlando were consistently playing the passing lanes in this first quarter, both looking for easy breakout dunk attempts. I can understand why. MJ scored an average of an 8.25 from the Russian judges on his first two baskets of the game. His second was a pump fake to get Welby free off of his feet. He brook-steppied in and double-pumped a 12-footer in, so another one of those double-clutch jump shots that he loves so much. Hello to brook-steppy, if you're listening. You've just thrown an Easter egg in there, mate, for the listeners who are part of the NB85 crew that listened to us uh, the first time around. An inside joke. I guess the Russian judges could have scored Jordan a little bit higher if he hadn't been Russian. His jump shot, that is. Moving on. Welcome back to the 86 NBA season pun game. Mm. Orlando's next two scores were a spectacular two-handed reverse power dunk and one of his patented power moves down the lane on three Cavaliers, no less, for a score. The Bulls had not only updated their jerseys for the 85-86 season, but the organization had also installed new Porter basket supports at each end of the court. I think they nicknamed them Terry as well. Goodness. I love how you observe this sort of stuff because I didn't really pay particular attention to it. And I know throughout our chats over the last couple of years, you've talked about certain things that you've noticed that I didn't even realize had happened in terms of how the court looked or how the basket supports looked. Kudos to you, mate. Yeah, it's just all part of the other sickness, I guess you could say. <laughs> It's an unconfirmed report that these Porter basket supports were actually made in Wisconsin Stevens Point. <laughs> it could have been. You could tell that Mark File was the Bulls trainer as he's the only guy on the bench wearing slacks and sneakers. <laughs> there were a lot of itchy trigger fingers in this first term, plenty of shots gunned up early in the shot clock, and no one seemed that interested in making that extra pass. <laughs> and we should add as well, the Bulls are coming off an 0-8 preseason. Dave Corzine checked into the game for Juwan Oldham, and the commentators made note that the Boo Birds were out for podcast favorite Corzine. <laughs> they then put the boots in by calling Dave a bust since he came over from San Antonio. Soon after, he tipped in a green miss, only to have the commentators say that it wasn't Corzine and he got credit for someone else's tip in. That was harsh. It was rough, yeah. There was a big cheer from the Bulls fans for the Iceman as he got off the bench to check into the game for the first time as a Chicago Bull. The fancy new Jumbotron was on display at Chicago Stadium during this game. This appears as though it's the same scoreboard that graced the stadium ceiling until it closed in 1994. It certainly looks very similar, if not identical, to what that one was that even I saw in person, mate, dare I say, in 1994 when I went to Chicago Stadium <laughs> in January of that year. Yeah, no, it's my turn, so quiet. <laughs> During a timeout late in the first term, Ace Hardware presented the San Diego Chicken <laughs> to entertain the Chicago crowd. As awesome as the chicken was back in 1985, I'd Bob love to see how a dude dressed in a chicken suit jumping around like a maniac would be greeted by fans. I reckon he'd be absolutely ripped to shreds. <laughs> <laughs> they already had Benny the Bull almost competing with the chicken for attention from the fans. Benny wasn't exactly the back-to-back 
greatest mascot in sports, Eddie. He currently is back in 84, 85, and 86. He was definitely being overshadowed by the chicken. He was. And also, Benny had a different look as well back in the mid-80s too. Yeah, very much so. The Iceman checked into the game to a mention of the icy relationship between Gervin and Jordan and the trade of Jordan's good friend, David Greenwood, and the release of another good friend of Michael Jordan, Rod Higgins, which only upset Jordan even more. World Big Free was off to a flyer with 15 points in the first term. I guess I can call him World, can't I? Yeah, call him World. I put World in a similar group as VJ and Q as short, stocky scoring machines. And he also hit a rare 1985 three-pointer to tie the game late in the first quarter. That first quarter, he was certainly all-world, wasn't he? was indeed. A Bulls turnover and podcast favourite Dirk Minifield layup <laughs> made the score Cleveland 30, Chicago 28 after one. Now into the second quarter, Charles Ugly had his first regular season minutes as a pro, and you could tell almost immediately that he was making a presence on the boards. He was built like an absolute brick Scheisenhausen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Speaking of the Iceman, he finished with four points, scoring both buckets, which were long jumpers, early in the second quarter, and Chicago were out to a 42-40 to lead at that stage. Now, the game we're chatting about, mate, it's a broadcast from ESPN Classic, so it's an edited-down version. Therefore, only a few minutes of this second quarter were shown. So the Bulls outscored the Cavs 26-22 to in the quarter, and they took a slim two-point lead into the halftime break. So the Bulls were up 54-52 to at the half. Onto the third quarter, early in the term, a wild John Bagley shot attempt led to a Bulls fast break. Orlando appeared to be setting himself up for an alley-oop pass, but Jordan held the ball for an extra second and then dumped it off to the trailing Jawan Oldham for a flying dunk down the lane. Chicago's offense was ticking in the third as Sidney Green was challenged on a baseline fadeaway only to dump it off at the last second to MJ who had cut behind him along the baseline for an easy one-handed dunk. Cleveland had only scored once after three and a half minutes of play and the best shot Welby Free could muster on the next play was an 18-foot prayer with MJ hanging all over him which drew nothing but air. Rookie Charles Oakley checked into the game after Sidney Green picked up his fourth foul in the third quarter. Oak got some good minutes in this game due to Sidney's foul trouble. Oak scored his first NBA point, going one for two at the line after being fouled off an offensive rebound. Adam, I think you'd agree that John Bagley was a bit of a handful for opposing point guards to defend. As you mentioned before, he was built like a brick shizen. <laughs> yeah, he was another one of those guys that was a lot more deceptively difficult to defend then uh, you'd actually imagine so when you first look at him. Very creative player. With 7.37 remaining in the third quarter, the Bulls were up 64-55. to 55. Orlando continued his scoring feast with a flying power dunk on Mark West after Kyle Macy hit him with a perfect pass as he was, not literally, streaking to the hoop. Overs fouled on the play, and the subsequent free throw gave him 17 points and a 13-point Bulls lead at 70-57. to 57. Soon after, MJ hit Woolridge on the baseline going to the hoop, and Orlando was hammered by Mark West but didn't get the foul call. It was one of those no calls that leaves you speechless. An observation that I made during this game was that well be free. He loved to kick his legs out during a jump shot to try and draw contact from the defender, which personally drives me nuts when I see that happen. Here is the perfect example of a guy who loved to score and explains why guys averaged some amazing assist numbers in the 80s as there was no shortage of gunners like Weld. 
Yeah, he was certainly going to get a lot of shots up. With 4.27 remaining in the term, the Bulls' lead had been cut to five off a flurry of Cavs scores to get them back into it in a great big hurry. Late in the third term, the Bulls were having trouble looking after the ball and the Cavs were simply running layup drills on them in a complete contrast to the first half of the third term, which would be an eighth of a game. I think I would have said that in the previous episode. Yeah. <laughs> The Bulls' frontcourt players kept insisting on dribbling the ball into the frontcourt, and Orlando and Gene River Banks <laughs> coughed the ball up on consecutive plays. If only he played for Phoenix. He could be a River Phoenix. Ah, oh, goodness. At the end of three quarters, the Bulls had a two-point lead, 79-77. to 77. The game was rejoined with six minutes and 20 seconds remaining in the fourth, and the scores were then Cleveland 90 to Chicago 89. Jordan sat out the first five-plus minutes with five fouls. Now, off a Ron Anderson fast-break layup, Ron Anderson's actually a product of Chicago, the Cavs took their largest lead of the game, four points, 93-89. to 89. Sidney Green fouled out for the Bulls, and he was replaced by Dave Corzine, which gave Chicago a semi-Twin Towers look as he teamed up with Jawan Oldham, which was something I believe the Bulls experimented with during the preseason. Meanwhile, Jordan had to play it safe and avoid picking up that sixth foul. In my notes here, mate, I've got how athletic was Roy Hinson? Agreed. This is something that I actually originally had written down, but then I saw that you mentioned it. He was mm. he was a leaper, wasn't he? Oh, fantastic. He rejected a certain Jordan layup late in this fourth quarter and got a bit sidetracked and went to the great basketballreference.com, checked out his player profile. He scored over 7,000 points in the NBA. He's a really talented guy, played eight years in the league and was with teams including Cleveland, of course, Philadelphia and New Jersey. Most notably known as part of the trade that the Sixers and the Cleveland Cavaliers made, which landed Hinton on the 76ers and netted the Cavs the first pick in the 1986 draft in Brad Doty. And we should also mention as well, while we're talking about a bit of a tangent, Charles Oakley. Oakley was actually selected by the Cavs in the draft, and then the Bulls did some dealing to actually get him to come to Chicago. He played his college ball in Division Two at Virginia Union, which, if my geography is correct, West Virginia, I believe, borders with Ohio. So he's got some close-ish links to Ohio. I think he actually played his high school ball in Ohio. He may very well have even been born in, in the state as well. I could be wrong on that one, but... I should have actually checked that before we started recording. Let me have a quick look right now. This is enthralling, no doubt. Um, basketballreference.com, you are amazing. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio. There you go, mate. Good call. He played his high school ball in Cleveland. At John Hay, it says. Then went to Virginia Union, so only a state or two away from Ohio. Got drafted by Cleveland, and yet they still stayed to their guns and actually agreed to do the dealing with the Bulls to actually get him to Chicago in return for what the Bulls offered up. So he really could have actually had a great career as a Cleveland boy playing in his home state. Many what-ifs there. Who was the Cavs' first-round pick, 85 draft? Bulls picked Keith Lee, the Cavs picked Oakley, and then they dealt with each other to switch picks. And then Cleveland's next pick wasn't until number 30 overall in the second round, which was Calvin Duncan, who actually was packaged up with Oakley to go to Chicago. So their next pick, I'm guessing, is back in round three, Herb Johnson, who never played in the NBA. Returning back to the game, John Bagley brought up his 13th and 14th points with a remarkable spinning shot in a lane. He was putting on an absolute Alex English clinic off the glass. That shot had a ridiculous amount of JoJo English on it, and <laughs> it was a crazy shot. He jumped as much as he possibly could, I guess, mm. that frame, but he jumped and then did this amazing double clutch, a whirling dervish to steal one of your pearls. 
Orlando Woolridge was an absolute rock for the Bulls in this game. He hit a baseline jumper, giving him 32 points for the game, and then he reduced the lead to just one point, 103 to 102. Now, down by just one, the Bulls pulled off consecutive offensive boards, and then Jawan Oldham was fouled. He went to the line with just 12 seconds left. He made the first and then missed the second. Orlando Woolridge was a man possessed, as he was throughout most of this game. He grabbed the loose ball and called for timeout. Chicago had a chance to win the game in regulation. Now, when they resumed play, Jordan was isolated at the top of the key. He drove towards the hoop and missed the potential game-winning shot with just under three seconds left. We go to overtime, tied at 105. In the overtime period, MJ hit an 18-footer, bringing up his 23rd and 24th points off the Kyle Macy assist, giving the Bulls a 107-105 to lead early in OT. And then after another Jordan jumper, the Bulls were up by seven with one minute and 58 seconds left. Cleveland then reeled off nine straight points in just over a minute, including a remarkable 21-foot off-balance shot from future bull Ben Poquette. Gentle Ben. Did you see that shot? I did indeed. It's crazy. Incredible shot from such a big guy. The Cavs then were ahead 115 to 113 following that run of nine straight points. Orlando then tied the game at 115 with two free throws. Jordan drew a foul with 22 seconds left. He made one of two and gave the Bulls a one-point edge. Also, that was the final score of the game. Roy Hinson had a final shot with less than 10 seconds remaining, but missed. Dave Corzine grabbed the board, and it was game over. Chicago were one and a zip on the season. It was a 116-115 to win over Cleveland, who dropped to 0-1. Now, for the Bulls, some very quick stats. Orlando had a monster game, 35 points and 12 boards. Jordan had a very solid 29 points, 6 boards, 3 assists and 3 steals. Juwan Oldham racked up 4 blocks. Oakley had nine boards in his first pro game. Kyle Macy had a very impressive 13 assists. And Dave Corzine had 11 points and nine rebounds. For the Cavaliers, Well Be Free went for 27 points. The aforementioned Ron, Ron, <laughs> Ron Hinson, must have Roy's brother, came off the bench. Roy Hinson had 21 points. John Bagley had 14 points and nine assists. Phil Hubbard, first mention of Phil for this season. I won't go for his nickname, had 11 rebounds. And Ron Anderson, as I said, he was a product of Chicago. He hit all six of his field goal attempts in this game and had a very handy 13 points. Yeah, it was a very nice game by Old Mother off the bench with 11 rebounds. And Ron Anderson had a great game as well, actually. He was only, I think, in his second year at this stage. So good effort there from Ron, wanting to make uh, an impact in front of his family, I guess, and obviously friends who were in attendance. And that was the season opener for the Bulls for the 85-86 season. Let's move straight into the second game of the season. Detroit versus Chicago, October 26th, 1985. Again played at Chicago Stadium in front of this time a much healthier crowd, 15,137. So still not a sellout, but considerably better than the previous game we just chatted about. Now this was an absolute beauty of a game, mate. This was a Pistons TV network coverage, and the commentators were Fred McLeod and Tom Wilson. Coaches for the Pistons, Chuck Daly, and for the Bulls, of course, Stan Elbeck. Both teams had won their season openers heading into this game, and for a little bit of context, the Bulls and Pistons had some exciting battles in the 85 season, which we talked about during our MB85 series. Most notably, Jordan's 49-point explosion at home in February of 85, where he torched Detroit in a contest which has since referred to as the revenge game due to Isaiah Thomas's alleged role in the 85 All-Star game freeze-out on Michael Jordan. Also, Jawan Oldham and Bill Lambeer had some history with a scuffle that happened during that 85 season. And speaking of scuffles, <laughs> we're going to talk about an absolute dandy that took place. I don't think I've ever said that word. Late in this matchup between two guys who you would not expect, if ever, could get into a scrap. <laughs> That's all we'll say for the moment. 
Also worth mentioning, mate, Isaiah Thomas received a relatively warm welcome from the Bulls crowd, it must be said. Yeah, a surprising relatively warm welcome. For Bulls guard Billy McKinney, who wore number seven in this contest, this was the first of nine games he would play with Chicago in this 85-86 season. He sat out 1985 because he was retired. Then he signed as a free agent with the team in late September in 1985. And his final game with the Bulls was December 6 at San Antonio. And we detailed a little bit about the history of Billy McKinney, both as a player and an executive, in episode one of this series. As was the custom back in the 1980s, apparently, as this was the Pistons' first game in Chicago, their whole team was introduced, led by 6'3 rookie out of McNeese State, Joe Dumas. That was great to see them all. And did you notice during the intros, when Bill Lambier got introduced, instead of doing the whole high-fiving of everybody on the team, he high-fived the guy closest to him when he came onto the court and then literally just pointed to every other player in one sweeping arm motion as if to say, I've high-fived everybody. I loved it. I have seen him do that on a clip somewhere, only once or twice maybe, and as soon as I saw him do it, I'm like, oh. I'm actually a bit torn about Lane Beer. It's awesome stuff. 100% Billy Lane Beer. If he was on my team, I'd love him. He just is the instigator, he's the aggravator, whatever else you want to say for any other adjective at all. But when he do the little winks and stuff, One of the truly great characters of the 80s and 90s. A very cool stat that was mentioned by the commentators from the previous 84-85 season was that per 48 minutes, Chicago's Jawan Oldham finished second in the NBA to the block shots leader Mark Eaton in blocks per game. Mark Eaton? Coincidentally, mate, former podcast guest Mark Eaton, inolianus.com slash 49, shameless self-promotion. But that's a great stat. Purely... Coincidental, I'm sure. Oh, for sure, mate. The Bulls' first score was, surprise, surprise, an Orlando 18-footer from straight ahead. MJ's first score was another of his double-pump jump shots, this time a beauty in the lane over Bill Lane Beer. The commentators made early mention of Jordan's $600,000 per season contract with the Bulls and his 500000 per season contract with Nike, and that the Air Jordan 1 had grossed $70 million in sales the previous season. Those are some staggering numbers. He was an empire already in his second season. He really was the other sneaker that saved Nike. Hmm. Chicago started at 7-2 Juwan Oldham and two 6-9 guys in the front court, and they gave the Pistons trouble on the backboards early on. It was these same 6-9 guys that coughed the ball up, trying to put it on the floor yet again, including back-to-back turnovers by Sidney Green. The new Jumbotron flashed up a trivia question for the fans. Who held the record for most rebounds in a game? Was it A, Artis Gilmore, B, Tom Ballwinkle, or C, Clifford Ray? The answer was Tom Ballwinkle, who once had 37 rebounds in one game. When Artis Gilmore's name was put on the screen, it's an unconfirmed report that there was a few boos in the crowd for Dave Corzine for the part he played in the trade of Artis. <laughs> that record of 37 in a game by Bowinkle was challenged mightily later in this 86 season by a Bulls rookie. That's all I'll say for the moment, mate. We'll get to it, though, in our March recaps. Out of a timeout, Orlando Woolridge hit a baseline 15-foot jump shot. Now, on top of the love that we have heaped on for the great man in MB85, I must add that his mid-range game was absolutely outstanding. He was up there. He was. Duane Oldham was getting a shot up at the hoop whenever he was within 10 feet of the rim. (laughs) 
he put up an extraordinary turnaround jump shot in the lane and hit it. Not extraordinary that he hit it, just that he put the spin move on no one at all as there wasn't a defender on him when he did it. <laughs> it was beautiful. It, it was actually quite the whirling dervish of a move. New coach Stan Albach, who bared a close resemblance to a cruise ship captain with those shiny buttons <laughs> on his jacket as he stood on the sidelines. The love boat. <laughs> it's all love boat. Was celebrating like one of the players after Orlando skied over Bill Lane Beer and his cement filled converse <laughs> and scored a gorgeous layup to put Chicago up 24 to 19. It was Orlando at his athletic finest. That's a good description there. I love that. Charles Oakley's first jumper had the commentator saying to get the women and children out of the way as his <laughs> wild spinning jump shot hit nothing but backboard. <laughs> Although I've got to say on that, they also made mention a bit later on in the game that Oakley's jumper lacked a bit of polish. But I've got to say, as he progressed throughout his career, he eventually developed a pretty reliable mid-range jump shot, wouldn't you agree, mate? Yeah, it became very dependable. One of the Chicago Bulls promos for its fans this season was that if the Bulls score 120 points, everyone gets free Pizza Hut pizza. Great promotion, and I did notice that as well when I was looking at the Jumbotron. A unique ending to this game as well in the game's final shot, which we'll get to, of course, at the end of this description, surprisingly, which is definitely worth listening to as well. A very unique finish. George Gervin checked in for MJ to yet another big ovation from the crowd. And at the 34-second mark of the opening term, Jawan's ego got a nice stroking as he saw the first and probably last triple team he'd ever <laughs> see in his NBA career. And after the first quarter, the score was 30-28 to 28 Chicago. Now, in the first few minutes of the second quarter, Isaiah Thomas hit a couple of quick buckets and he tied the score at 32. Jordan checked back into the game, thus far only scoring six points. And I want to make note here that Tony Campbell, a.k.a. Top Cat, still wearing double zero, he changed to number 19 when he joined the LA Lakers after leaving the Pistons. He hit his first four shots of the quarter, and he finished the game shooting a very respectable five of seven from the field. He played all 82 regular season games in 1986 and was starting to just get a bit more notoriety around the league with what he actually could do, and he'd go on to show that Many years hence, particularly as a member of the T-Wolves, one of my favourite players in the early 90s too. Rookie Joe Dumas hit his first jump shot of the game, which gave him four points as Detroit were ahead 45-42. to And at this point here, mate, I've got in my notes that I love the inherent bias that some, I will say, some local teams commentators have. At one stage, George the Iceman Gervin attempted a shot to which Fred McLeod said, Gervin with an ugly hook shot. That's all he said. I'll be discussing some of this... Ugly bias a little later on the uh, game breakdown. <laughs> the Pistons were in the penalty with just under four minutes left in this quarter. Sydney Green hit a nice jumper in the lane, which gave him nine points for the game. And the Bulls a 56-55 lead with less than two minutes remaining in the half. Jordan then hit a pretty baseline jumper after faking a spin to the middle of the floor, a move very reminiscent of one of the first buckets he would score in the NBA in his debut against Washington. That gave him 13 points for the game, and the Bulls were up by one. He'd make two free throws late in the quarter, which gave him 15 points, and nine of those were off-made free throws, which gave the Bulls a one-point lead at the half, 60-59. to 59. At halftime of the Detroit Pistons broadcast, I found it very cool, and we mentioned this before we started recording today, that they screened an interview that Bulls legend Johnny Kerr did with Detroit head coach Chuck Daly. Yeah, that was great to watch, and particularly good that the Pistons network 
showed the interview, given it was from the Chicago Bulls feed. Of course, it was with Chuck Daly as the coach, so it makes sense. During the halftime rejoin, you hear colour man Tom Wilson say that the Bulls are a two-man team with Jordan and Woolridge, especially with Quinton Daly effectively having a scholarship to drug rehabilitation school. That is shocking. Not Wilson's best work. Far from it. That's that's going way too far. Very insensitive. The biased Pistons cause continued their fine work by saying that Sid Green should have been called for a technical for hanging on the rim after he missed a putback dunk attempt. Hmm. Sydney went up with the intent to dunk the ball back. He missed the ball and he grabbed the rim and they thought that he should have been called for a technical for hanging on the rim. Absolutely extraordinary. That is extraordinary. And I have to apologise to my dad who just tried to call me on Skype and he's still trying to call me. Sorry, Dad, I've got to hang up on you. Hello to Michael, if you're listening. (laughs) MJ was 3 for 11 from the field at this stage, early in the third, but was 9 for 10 from the free throw line. Isaiah got the piston lead out to six with a dribbling exhibition between his legs. He's calling again. Can I just add him into the call and just say a quick hello? Yes, mate. Hang on. Hello, Dad. Hello, Adam. You've got Aaron and myself on a Skype call. We're recording a episode of NB86 for the podcast, mate. How are you? Goodbye. I'll see you later. <laughs> no. Michael, Hi, Michael Hi, how are you, mate? Good, thanks. That's why I hang up on you twice. <laughs> Is that why? You want to keep your momentum going. I'll call you back later. Call me back later. That'd be good. No worries, mate. We'll catch up. Sound all right? Cheers. See you, Aaron. See you, Mike. Bye. See you, mate. Hey, Rick. <laughs> oh, dear. Funny stuff. Um, Sorry, mate. So return to what you were saying there. Isaiah, he drew a double team and then hit a wide open Jerry Seinfeld Chapuka for a <laughs> jump shot. Isaiah Thomas also hit a sweet floating layup over Corzine and got the comment from the commentators that Sydney Green, who actually also challenged the shot, hit Isaiah in the face and he should have got the foul call. Then during the replay, you see Green not even get close to touching his face. <laughs> and then Tom Wilson said it was only Isaiah's quickness that saved him from serious injury. Wow. Drawing along buoy. Yeah, exactly. We must say as well, Johnny Red Kerr, particularly known right up there with Tommy Heinsohn as two of the greatest all-time Homer commentators ever. But some of these comments were certainly challenging that status as well from the Detroit commentators. It's also a Chicago Bulls-based podcast series, so... Of course. Um, let me try and work this out. Jerry seinfeld Trapuga. Yep. George's dad was played by Ben Stiller's father. You are digging way too deep. Okay, so I didn't have to go even that far because Ben Stiller is a Kelly Chapuka lookalike. Kelly looks like Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, yeah, I guess he does, actually. In my accurate opinion. I was going way too far because George's dad is Ben Stiller's dad in real life, of course. Ben Stiller is in line to play Kelly Chapuka in the story of the 1985-86 Detroit Pistons. Absolute lock, too, he would be. Podcast favourite Dave Corzine's first two buckets came on consecutive possessions as he hit carbon copy jumpers from just outside the foul line. Bill Lane Beer then got called for a push-off on an offensive rebound attempt and proceeded to animatedly spit the dummy as only he could. (laughs) He even had the Turner and Hooch-esque slobber string as he screamed his innocence. I saw that as well. That was crazy. It was a monster. He was possessed. He was possessed, yeah. The slow-mo replay of it actually came to a still. You could see it actually hanging out of his mouth, literally Turner and Hooch style. That's a great comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Hello to Tom Hanks, if you're listening. It actually looked like Lamb had 
slide one of those concrete filled converse that he's wearing. <laughs> Kyle Macy's technical free throw brought the Piston lead back to seven points. Orlando then tied the game on a beautiful left handed layup and a three point play opportunity. The callers said that Orlando traveled on the play, which I can tell you right now he didn't. <laughs> Orlando then annihilated a Rick Mahorn attempt at the rim on the very next play, which led to an MJ jumper, a furious Bulls comeback, and a Bulls two-point lead. With 2.30 remaining in the third and an 82-79 Bulls lead, the Bulls faithful chanted, We want ice, which led into a timeout and a bit of Huey Lewis in the news with the power of love over the loudspeakers. <laughs> Very 1985. How awesome is that? This is right around the Back to the Future year as well. Almost to the date. It was. This is October 26, 85. Spooky. It was mentioned during the timeout that Rick Mahorn was apparently upset after copping an elbow in the mouth under the hoop. And the commentators then said to keep an eye on Rick as he will react physically. <laughs> Ken Benson did his best Bill Winnington impersonation with a pretty sweet putback dunk of a wild Isaiah Thomas miss. And at the end of three quarters, the score was Detroit 88, Chicago 86. That was a great putback. Jordan kicked off the fourth quarter with a running bank shot from about eight feet. That tied the scores at 88. Jawan Oldham had a very nice sequence not long after. He hit a jumper in the lane. Then on the other end of the floor, he had a monster block on Joe Dumas that resulted in an easy two for Gene Banks. If there's one thing that Jawan Oldham loved, it was putting block shots into the third row of the crowd. He, he didn't just block shots, he was a swatter. He was, and this one he kept in play, which led to that, yeah. that score. He was a tremendous defender. Um, off a of Kyle Macy steal, MJ had his way with a young Joe Dumas. It sounds a bit wrong. Scoring two off the glass. Great two points by MJ. Like as you said, he took advantage of Joe Dumas and just bullied his way in for a pretty easy score in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So the Bulls were up ninety four to ninety at that stage. Shortly thereafter, MJ almost made the stadium's roof collapse. Oldham rejected Dumas into the middle of nineteen eighty seven leading to a beautiful MJ dunk in transition. And without word of a lie, Jordan took off from about nine feet from the rim and then flushed it home one-handed. Timeout Detroit, Bulls up 96-90. I didn't make mention of this in my notes, but again, the uh, the commentators made mention about Vinnie Johnson, a.k.a. VJ, who was the only guy back on Jordan at the time when he made that dunk. Something along the lines of if it had been a different situation that Vinnie would have put Jordan on the floor. There was no chance in, in Vinnie Johnson having any impact on that play whatsoever. No, it was a fantastic play, and the crowd were going absolutely ape droppings at this stage. Beautiful dunk. A big three-point play from the microwave. Cut the ball's lead to just two, 96-94. Gervin then hit a nice lefty hook in the lane, giving him eight points for the game, extending the ball's lead to five. Now, it's at this point, mate, where I'm going to have to start quoting from the Chicago Tribune because what happens next is quite remarkable. We alluded to this a bit earlier. Quote, For Albeck, a veritable welterweight at five foot 10, 150 pounds, the bell rang with five minutes and 31 seconds left in the game. Five foot 10, 150 pounds was... A pretty standard weight for a cruise ship captain back in 1985. It was. That must be said. Chicago was ahead by five points, 103 to 98, when Jordan was fouled hard by Bill Lambier. Said MJ, quote, It was like he did it intentionally. That's when I got mad. He definitely did it intentionally. Back to the Tribune. Quote, Jordan was angry and Albeck was incensed. 
end quote. At this point, all hell breaks loose and players are exchanging words all over the court. Meanwhile, the cruise ship captain all but ran out onto the court and took issue with anyone who listened. Remarkably, Albeck and Daly started to go at it. Seriously, they were absolutely going at it. And before you know it, they were being separated by players, officials, and even the stadium security staff. It was amazing scenes, something that you could never have anticipated ever happening. Both coaches were given technical fouls and were ejected. And as Albeck was led back to the locker room, he raised a fist to the crowd as he was being escorted. Inside of the crowd. And the crowd went ape droppings. They went baresque. He also showed that with his need and his want to go on with it, even after they were separated, that before he was grey, he was red. He was a redhead. Make no mistake about that because he was angry. How was this fracas, mate? This was incredible. You could see afterwards when Chuck Daly was being escorted off the court <laughs> that he was having a bit of a laugh to himself and also the, the security guy that was escorting him out of the uh, arena at the time, couldn't you? I've never seen anything like that ever. That was just out of this world crazy. Dick Harter was now the head coach of the Pistons in Daly's absence and Murray Arnold took charge of the Bulls in the cruise ship captain's absence. Following the fracas, MJ would score the next six points for the Bulls. There were four made free throws and then a baseline jumper, and Chicago held a strong lead, 109 to 100. Now, two Isaiah Thomas free throws brought the lead back to just five, 109 to 104, not long after, and then Beer banked one home from about 16 feet, and all of a sudden, the Pistons were only down by three, 109 to 106. With a little over two minutes left in the game, Beer hit a rainbow jumper that gave Detroit the lead at 112 to 111. Now, the Bulls regained the lead thanks to two free throws from Dave Corzine, and then Isaiah hit an incredible running lefty hook shot from about 14 feet. Yeah, tough shot. One of the most astounding shots I've ever seen, and that gave the Pistons the lead, 114 to 113. Warridge then made a very tough shot and was fouled, so he went to the charity stripe. Meanwhile, Ted Wilson, the Detroit commentator, said it was a bad call. He said Orlando traveled, and then it was an offensive foul. <laughs> Orlando missed the freebie and Thomas was fouled. He made both shots and gave the Pistons the lead in a seesawing battle. It was also an unconfirmed report that Tom Wilson believed that it was Murray Moccasin Arnold who actually <laughs> shot JFK. <laughs> All right. Sid Green then hit two clutch free throws, which gave Chicago the lead at 117 to 116. Now, scores were tied at 117 when a very tough call went against Detroit's Kent Benson, who fouled out. That led to Sidney Green's free throws with 13 seconds left. He canned both, giving the Bulls a two-point lead. No timeout was called, so Isaiah Thomas cleared out and went at Jordan. Thomas missed a long two. Lane Beer grabbed the rebound, and then he was fouled. It gets really interesting from here because it became mind games from the Chicago coaching squad, the fans, and the Pistons. Lane Beer made the first free throw. The Bulls still held on to a one-point lead. Now, there was two seconds left in the game, and then Chicago decided to call back-to-back -back timeouts to try and ice Lane Beer before he got back to the free-throw line. It almost seemed like a good 30 minutes later by the time he returned to the stripe. He missed the second free-throw. The crowd went absolutely baresque. Jordan grabbed the rebound and he got fouled. This led to a, a very unique finish to the game. By the time Jordan attempted his free-throws, his Chicago teammates were standing on the baseline under the basket that Jordan was shooting to. So just imagine that for a moment. Meanwhile, Detroit had left the court. They didn't even hang around. They just left. And the absolute ultimate moment for me, the crowd were going insane and MJ shot his final free throw with his left hand, made it, and the crowd were going as berserk as MJ's teammates were. It was quite a remarkable finish to the game. The Bulls were winners 121 to 118. 
The Bulls were 2-0 and on the season. Detroit dropped to 1-1. One and one. Here's some great quotes courtesy of the Chicago Tribune. I had a great feeling as I got kicked out, Holbeck said. The fans in this building are unbelievable. They really rallied around the team. When Lambier missed that free throw at the end of the game, this stadium just about exploded. There's no feeling in all the world better than this. He goes on to say, I think it added a little spice to a rather dull evening. I don't want to comment on the fight, but I think the films will show that Lambier decked Michael. The call was made, but I think the foul was uncalled for. I expressed that to the people on the floor, and I got kicked out, and Daly got kicked out. So some great quotes there from Stan. To wrap things up, mate, for the Bulls, Jordan had a very good game. 33 points, 7 boards, 6 assists, 2 steals, and 3 blocks. Orlando Woolridge went for 29 points. Sydney Green had 13, and Dave Corzine had 6 points and 10 rebounds. For Detroit, Isaiah had 36 points, 16 of which came from the free throw line, along with 9 rebounds. Lane Beer and Microwave had 16 points apiece. Kelly Trapuca and Tony Campbell had 12 points each. Kent Benson had 12 boards, and future Bull Earl Curitan had 3 blocks. The first two games of the Chicago Bulls' 86 season, 2-0. Things seem to be pretty rosy for the Bulls after a very ordinary off-season, but this would end quite abruptly in their very next game, which was at Golden State. We won't get into too many specifics, but it was a crucial moment of the Bulls' season, and we'll recap that in our next episode of NB86. So, mate, that brings us to the end of this episode. Would you like to add anything at all before we do put a bow on it? In the red corner... Stan Albeck in the blue corner. Chuck Daly. Let's get ready to giddy up. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allannis.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallannis. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallannis. Join me next time for another edition of the show. <laughs> oh, it almost needs Michael Buffer, doesn't it? It really does. The Pistons leaving the court before the, the other game had finished, a, uh, a precursor to six years later. Eastern Conference Finals after game four. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for going, perhaps. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, that's it.